0: is the Evangelist's Conference podcast. The Evangelist's Conference is hosted by Jay John, Killy John, and Andy Economides for those called to do the work of the Evangelist. To find out more and to book your place for next year, visit evangelistsconference.com. Mary had a little lamb, it was given to her to keep, but then it joined the church and died from lack of sleep. <laughs> So true. You know, if our output exceeds our input, then our upkeep will be our downfall. And uh, I felt for a, a very long time that it would be so good um, as part of our conference to have someone to come in and to uh, speak to us about well being, uh, health and well being in body, mind, and spirit. And uh, it gives me great joy. Uh, to welcome Dr. Sally Bell. Please welcome Dr. Sally Bell. (laughs) Sally, we're so pleased that you're here and uh, it was great. I actually invited her sister to come and speak. And what was so great oh, was a
1: second thought.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, second thought. But her sister, who's also a doctor, said, oh no. She says, no. She says, you've got to have my sister. She's so much better than me. Um, well, that's a great commendation. Sally, it's great that you're here. Uh, I'm going to say a prayer for you. Father, thank you that Sally's here. Thank you for the, her experience, uh, knowledge. And wisdom and uh, we pray bless her as she blesses us use her to speak into our minds and hearts and we pray this in the name of Christ amen. Amen. Thank you
1: thank you Um, it's a real real joy to be with you and have the privilege to speak to you. Um, As uh, um, John has just said I'm a Doctor, and I'm been a GP for over twenty, well, nearly twenty-five years, um, and I have specialised in the last decade in lifestyle medicine and nutrition. Um, I have a particular interest in women's health. I'm also really passionate about how our food is grown and where it's grown. And, uh, and when Jay John came to my home um, at the beginning um, of, la- of last year, now uh, he wanted me to talk to you about what we could be doing to help. Um, us feel good and help support our health, both individually and collectively, and look after our communities. Um, I am not in clinical practice anymore. I was in the NHS and I had a private practice up until last year. The main thing I do at the moment is actually teach around wellness. Um, And I hope in this talk, I've got an hour with you, uh, and I hope that I might maybe disrupt a little bit of thinking Um, I'm hoping to unpack a framework that you might be able to come back to in the future and signpost you to some safe voices in this confusing time of media and different opinions that you might be able to go on to look to and help you in your own health journey. Um, and I'm going to do that by telling you a little bit of my story of how I got into lifestyle medicine. We will unpack that framework uh, very briefly. We will take a little deep dive into nutrition. And then there's going to be some time at the end to ask your questions. Um, please make them generic. I don't want any personal medical histories. Um, so yes, and, uh, but yeah, feel free to ask whatever you wish. <laughs> My story really starts back in medical school, I trained in Nottingham in the early 90s, and uh, and in those first couple of years of medical school, it's really marvellous. You learn all about how incredibly um, uh, brilliant your body is. It is a totally, totally genius. Our body has an incredible ability to heal itself, to balance our moods, to look after our sugars, to get rid of cancer cells, to moderate our immunity, and for us to live long. It's really, really amazing amazing. And I think in society we have forgotten how our body is for us and how ingenious it is. And I remember being totally addicted, thinking this is stunning. I fell in love with medicine in those first few years. And then in your third year, they shuffle you onto the wards with your white coat and your stethoscope. And really, um, my experience was, was, you just need to forget all that now, Sally. You need to learn um, sort of pattern recognition, and you need to put people into disease categories, and you need to follow guidelines, which over the last 25 years have become very pharmaceutically driven. And I remember as a 20-year-old thinking, It just doesn't make sense. Why am I moving from treating people to treating diseases? And, you know, why would somebody's disease be the same as everybody else's? And I just, it it, it rattled me back then, but I was a young uh, woman. I didn't really know my voice. I went into medicine because I wanted to help people feel better. Um, So I went with the program, I trained as a GP. Me and my husband went out and spent some time um, in Uganda and Sudan for quite a few years doing primary health care out there. Um, And I came back to work in the inner city in Nottingham. Totally fell in love with it. It's one of the most poorest estates um, in England. And uh, there was every nation under the sun there. And I was so happy But what I'd realised while I'd been away is a lot had changed politically. And um, whereas I would have known um, your grandma and um, I would have known your whole family, because of the changes of how we had to offer same-day appointments, I lost that continuity of care, I lost that ability to place you within family. And certainly when I left um, general practice in 2016, I was seeing up to 40 patients a day for 10 minutes at a time. I didn't know them and they didn't know me. And it was really, I was really struggling. And I was tired of treating diseases, not people. I was tired of treating a part of you and not the whole of you. Um, Again, specialised care is amazing. And uh, we have made great feats over the last 30 years in specialising. But there is a doctor for everything. Even a bone doctor, you've got one for your ankle and one for your toe and one for your hip. You've got the liver doctor, the skin doctor, the rheumatologist. You've got the brain doctor. You've got um, doctors that look after um, uh, your guts. and actually, in the early days when I trained in general practice, the GP would have held that together because we would be able to offer some continuity of care. Um, but now, we, now that was breaking down. So this was really bothering me. This was in the sort of about 2010. Um, and I say to people I felt more like a pharmaceutical vending machine than I did a doctor. You know, people would walk in and go, Oh, I've got diabetes, ping, 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 here's your three drugs. Oh, you've got depression, ping, or let's hope we can get you some CBT. And there's just there was just no sense of me being able to respond in terms of personalizing care. Um, And as it happens to most people with my my kind of story, I ended up getting sick myself. Uh, And I had weird and wonderful symptoms. Uh, I remember dreading going to my own GP because I couldn't work it out myself and I'd have all these blood tests and I'd be told everything was normal and sort of pat on the back and try and reduce your hours and your stress. Um, And then there came a point one September where I couldn't coordinate my legs anymore on the treadmill and I went back to my GP and I said, this isn't normal. And I went through the NHS and... Within this discussion, you need to understand the NHS is brilliant. It's brilliant at specialised care. It's brilliant at trauma. If you, on your way back from this conference, ended up in ED because of an accident, you wouldn't want me standing over you talking to you about broccoli and sleep. You know, you would want that anaesthetist. You would want you know that orthopaedic surgeon. Um, you know, they are brilliant. Um, But anyway, so I went through the system, Um, I had various scans, I sat with my neurologist, I finally got a label for what was wrong with me and offered drugs which, after a time, I didn't know whether it was because it was the drugs or because I was unwell. I felt awful all the time. And I had this moment with him, which was the tipping point for me. I was in clinic, and I said, I just don't feel you're telling me what's wrong with me. Like, what can can I do to help myself get better? He did not look up. He wrote another prescription. He said, come back in three months, Sally. And I took that prescription, I walked out, I put it in the bin, and I said, no, there has to be a better way. I remember training and learning about a body that could look after me and see me thrive and live long. And so I went back to the books, and I was like, what do I need to do to help my body heal and help my body um, thrive? I actually had to go to America um, to sort of get some training. And I was surprised what I found One of the things I found is how much the science had come on since the 90s, and yet I was still practicing in the mindset of what I had learnt in the 90s. And, you know, when we start looking under the hood of what is causing our disease, And I'm talking about chronic diseases and those are the diseases that you can't catch, that you can't pass on to one another. You know, and at the moment we have a health crisis where one in two of us in this room will get cancer in our lifetime. May get cancer, it's a faith place, I have to be careful how I say that, but in the nation one in two um, have cancer. Two-thirds of our adult population are obese or overweight. One in 10 of our preschoolers are are obese, and one in five of our children when they leave primary school are obese. We have escalating problems around autoimmune diseases. We spend over a billion a year on diabetes, which can be reversed with diet. And we have one in four of us go and see a health practitioner for mental health issues over the last month. Um, And so we have this massive problem and we have escalating issues around the mental health of our children, you know, and, uh, and escalating issues around suicide. Like, it's a real problem and it isn't, you know, dim and distant figures for our policymakers to grapple with. These things strike at the heart of our own families, our own lives. It has hit my family and I have had to wrestle with it too. But when you start looking at what's causing this, you start looking under the hood, what you find is that depending on the disease, anything between 90 to 60% is due to our individual and collective lifestyle choices. And hear me, it's individual and collective. This isn't about blame. You haven't got cancer because of one thing that you have done. It is collective and it is individual around the choices that we are making. But when I started to understand that, um, I started to build a framework that many other practitioners now are using that helps us look at how we can tap into that innate brilliance of our bodies to heal. And I talk about five foundations. I talk about sleep, movement, rest, um, connection. So connection to self, connection to others, connection to nature and faith and nutrition. And we start to understand. So when you start looking nationally at these foundations, we realise why we're so sick. So sleep is the most potent healer, on the planet. You know, it really beggars the question why on earth do we ever wake up? Like when we. <laughs> When, you know, when we go to sleep, we have mechanisms that get rid of cancer cells. It heals up our mental and emotional health. It heals up our physical health. It boosts our immunity. It calms down our inflammation, which is at the heart of many of our chronic diseases. And we need somewhere between seven and a half and nine hours asleep, not in bed, asleep. And on average, the British adult gets 6 hours and 24 minutes, with catastrophic impacts on our health. And so sleep has been undermined. When we look at movement, and I use the word movement instead of exercise, sitting really is the new smoking when you're looking at risk. And, and, so, and there's these huge studies coming out of Canada and out of Australia that show that those of us that do like to hit the gym or maybe have a run in the morning, if you go out and do that but then you go to sit for the five to seven hours after that, it makes no difference to the diseases you get or how long you live. And what we need to be doing is embedding our exercise, which is important, into an active lifestyle. It is parking away from the supermarket door, it's having a standing desk, it's using the upstairs loo, um, it is using the local shop for our milk and our bread um, instead of just doing a weekly shop at the supermarket. It's inconveniencing our life. And then I would say that the most critical exercise that we need to be doing, especially for those that are 40 and above, and particularly women, is strength work. Um, More than our hits and more than our cardio, like strength work is so important for our longevity and embedding it um, within our movement practices. I talk about rest really being an antidote to stress. Uh, You know, long before the pandemic came along, the COVID pandemic, the WHO declared that stress was a global pandemic. And the reason is that when we're in a stress response, it diverts all that energy from keeping us cancer free, from fighting those viruses, from creating new memories, um, from all of those other things that the body likes to do. It puts you in that position where you're just getting the job done, which is great. Now, for many people, they're like, I'm not stressed. But you start wiring yourself up to gadgets that measure your stress response. What we start to realise is that thought you're ruminating changes the physiology of your body and puts you into a stress response if it's a negative thought. And the same with like a, no- a noise or you know, a ping from an email. What we're starting to understand is all these micro-stresses going on. And if you haven't got practices that de-stress you daily, weekly and monthly, then you are in a stressed state and it will be having an impact on your health. Connection's a fascinating one. It seems to be the fluffy bit, but there is robust evidence that shows that if we are disconnected from ourselves, if we are disconnected from each other, if we are disconnected from nature, it is as much a driver in disease as things like smoking and our high blood pressure. And our um, and weight. And there's robust evidence that shows this that actually you can come into my clinic, I can get you off the fags, and I can sort out your diabetes quite easily, and I can get your blood pressure down. But if I don't sort out your loneliness, you will still go on to have that heart attack. So that need to be able to look at the whole and see that actually we can never achieve health as individuals. We were never created to be an individual. We have to see ourselves within the context of our communities and having healthy relationships in order to enjoy life. But really, you know, when we're in crisis or where we don't know where to start, get a good night's sleep hold on to a loved one, go out into nature and have a walk, do something that you love doing and lose yourself in the moment of doing it and repeat and repeat. That is often all we need to do to shift our body into that place where it can start healing itself and enhance our healing. So I want to talk a little bit about nutrition because it's often the thing that's most confusing and it's the one I always get asked about. When I started, um, are we all OK yeah, yeah okay um, when I started looking into this, first of all, we get no training as GPs. as doctors in nutrition, none. We, have, we know nothing. <laughs> so which is bonkers, isn't it? Um, second of all, nearly every public health message about food has been wrong. And if you want to understand that, look at Professor Tim Spector's book, "The Spoon Fed Nation." Um, So anything that you've heard before, disregard. Um, uh, And and I think third third thing is that nutrition and food is so much more than calories. It is information to our bodies. You know, I can give you 100 calories of broccoli and 100 calories of gummy bears. They would do completely different things to your body. They will signal different things. They will switch on certain mechanisms. And so it is not about calories. It is so much more. And food isn't just about nutrition either. Food is a thing that brings us together and celebrates our heritage. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But when I started looking into this, having had no training, back in 2010 and being rather ill, um, I mean, it is so confusing, isn't it? You've got professor so-and-so saying high fat. You've got an equally academic professor saying low fat. The vegans say that if we eat meat, we're all going to die. You've got paleo said that you should only eat meat. I mean, there are just such dime And they've all got science. They've all got research. That's the other thing about nutritional science. It's very young, and most of it's rubbish. It really is. You have to take it with a pinch of salt. The only person worth actually following at the moment is Tim Spector with his, nutrition, with his nutritional work. Um, and so you do have to take it with a pinch of salt. But what's, and I spent years oh, going through studies, and, but there's one thing that binds us all together, and it is the thing that can change the health of our nation, and it is the simplest thing. And and it brings everybody together, we all agree on it, and it's this. The thing that is killing us in Western nations is our ultra-processed food. There is nothing else you have to do but understand what ultra-processed food is and eat real food. If you do that, you will change your health. You will change the health of your family and your community. And there are research suggests that we would actually reduce our chronic disease burden by 80% if that's all we do. The question is, what is ultra-processed food? Does does anybody have a guess how much we eat as a nation, a percentage of your diet? 90? Oh my goodness, you're unhealthy. Who said that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's 57%, but compared to something like 20% in Portugal and some of these continental countries... Um, the only, America's the only one that beats us, actually. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, so, so yes. But what is ultra-processed food? I mean, throw out a food you would consider ultra-processed. Chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets Pot, noodle. Pot, noodle. Pot noodle. McDonald's. McDonald's. Anything else? Uh, does anybody ha- want to guess, like, how do you define it? What? Yeah. How, many how many ingredients, yeah? You've been Super listening to Tim Spector. How many different processes? It's ultra-processed. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's something that, as academics, they've been grappling with for years. And certainly the food industry don't want us to pin it down because it will make them culpable to the fact that how much damage it's causing to our health. Um, but in 2008, a Brazilian group of scientists got together and they created something called the Nova categorization. You don't have to remember any of this, but... Um, And they categorise food into four categories. Again, you don't have to remember. Uh, But the first is like how it comes off the field, you know, or uh, so your veg and your meat. The second categorisation is kind of the condiments like your oils or your vinegars that you might add to a food. The third is minimally processed, like we process all of our food, like we roast our coffee, we chop our onions, we fry things, like that is a process. And usually involves the ingredients category one and category two. Ultra-processed, they use two things to work out whether it's ultra-processed. Only one is useful to us as consumers. And it is this. If you would not have the domestic equivalent in your cupboard, it is ultra-processed. So if you do not open your cupboard and go, oh, I think I'll add some E472 and some ascorbic acid and a bit of nitrates to my curry tonight so that is what you are looking for the other thing is is about as uh, the lady suggested here it's been through so many processes and changed it so much you know from from its original form but often we don't know that and the only clue that we have is turning the packet over and if you do not recognise what is in that ingredient, I suggest you don't eat it for the majority of the time. Now I have an 80-20 rule, 80% of the time make good decisions, 20% of the time do what you want. As a nation we have it the wrong way around at the moment. But our body can cope with this kind of food um, but it needs to be in the context of a real food diet. So you need to be those weirdos in the the aisle of the supermarket, flipping things over and having a look. If you're not in the Um, if you're not able to cook your own food from scratch, which the majority of us, when we've got two incomes and people are working within the home, don't have the opportunity to cook from scratch so much. And just because it comes in a packet doesn't mean it's ultra-processed. You know, you can flip it over and have a look and let that be your guide. Um, and, And so I always say the big thing here, all you need to do in terms of diet is eat real food, Eat with gratitude. You know, if you're super stressed, you're not gonna absorb it anyway. So what's the point? You know, and eat together because it brings us together and it helps us pause. And if you can incorporate that into the majority of the ways you eat, then you really are onto a winning streak. I think also under that banner of real food, is we do have to have a plant slant. You do not have to eat plant-only, unprocessed meat in terms of how I've interpreted the data is fine, but it needs to be in the context of having more plants. I talk about eating the rainbow, like eating a rainbow of different colours. And that's all to do with something called our gut microbiome, which I can't talk about now, but it's really central to health. One of the other things about that is, we're just going to play a little game. You're going to hate me because it's about sugar. Does anybody know how much sugar we eat before it starts causing havoc with our body for men all right have a sip. Anybody? so anybody see how many grams or how many teaspoons do you think in a day two one five six yeah so um it's tw- for men depending on your size it's around 28 grams which is these are all four grams a teaspoon so it's around seven Eight, two, four, six, seven. And this is free sugars, added sugars. Does anybody know what it is for women? We don't know because all the research is on men, we are mini men. <laughs> in every context, whether it's the drugs they're testing, in nutritional science, 97% is on men. We have no idea. Uh, and we are physiologically, biologically, genetically different. Um, so it's six. For children 7 to 10, it's 5 to 6. Um, it's 4 for children 2 to 4. There are no safe limits for children under 2 having sugar in their diet. Um, so let's just play a little game. We're going to just dig into my shopping bag here. Uh, so um, we're going to start with a bit of Jordan's muesli. Surely it's some of you five a day. Uh, how much sugar do you think? And... and They say 45 grams. Does anybody really put 45 grams? It's only about that much. It's probably more. We'll go 45 grams. How much sugar do you think is in added sugars in a bowl of this Jordan's? 12, 10, 25. Is that grams or teaspoons? Grams, yeah. So let's do teaspoons of sugar because then otherwise my little things don't work. Three, four, Yeah, I mean, what's really interesting with this is there are about 50 names for sugar. Um, so it gets confusing. So there's five different sugars in here. You can work out how much sugar is in total. You look at the carbohydrates and you look at the content of sugars. will tell you how many grams in a portion. And so in this, there's four um, equivalent teaspoons of extra sugar so we're just going to put those four fab okay so you get the kids off to school it's been a nightmare you forgot harry's homework you had to knit back now you're late um you've dropped him off and you can't go into your meeting without just popping a costa <laughs> Oh, it's been a tough morning. You didn't have time for breakfast, uh, so we're going to have a grand chai latte to treat ourselves. Did a little kick. How many equivalent teaspoons of sugar? Not grams. Forty. <laughs> <laughs> Is it okay at Starbucks? No. Yeah, I mean there are twenty. Yeah, twenty. 20 equivalent teaspoons of sugar. Some of those are your natural sugars, actually, um, called lactase. So we'll take a few off for that and say about 15. The best thing is, is when you're in the queue, you suddenly remember what Dr Bell said and you decide to have a black coffee. Because coffee in itself is very good for your gut microbiome. And as a population is healthy, unless you're very, very stressed and sleep deprived. And coffee hangs around in your system for over 6 to 12 hours. So you shouldn't be drinking coffee after 12 o'clock. I'm going to be looking that when you have your break. So, yeah, brilliant. And while you're there, while you're there, the woman in the front of you is just rabbiting on a bit and um, you're standing in front of that lovely cake counter and you have no intention, no intention of eating anything. But there's a very small blueberry muffin. It's one of your five a day. And it's very small and it's on its own. And you're waiting for so long, you know, and you're sleep deprived. So, you're sleep hor- so your appetite hormones aren't working. Um, and so therefore you feel hungry all of the time. That's true. If you sleep, you'll lose weight. So, um, so how many equivalent teaspoons of sugar... How many equivalent teaspoons of sugar in a little blueberry muffin? (laughs) Fifteen. Fifteen. Yes, yeah, so it's 10. Now, Costa got um, shamed about this last year, so they put artificial sweeteners in. Artificial sweeteners would never have had their safety license had we known what they were doing to our hormones, disrupting not our sex hormones, our hormones that control our sugars and control our appetite and what they do to our gut microbiome, but they'll, they'll never get that back now. So natural sweeteners are OK, honey is OK, but artificial sweeteners are not a solution. So, yes, 10. Um, yeah, I'll put that down there. Da, da, da. Brill. So you get through the morning. I don't know where you guys work. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Brilliant. And you pop to get a meal deal because you're walking over to uh, Brill. I'm always surprised with savoury stuff. So we've gone for a coronation chicken. Sorry, vegetarians. How many equivalent teaspoons of sugar in a? In none. twice 12, 12 is interesting so there's only three but I'm always surprised with savoury so yeah we, we're just going to go three there now yeah again uh, so you've gone for a juice is my orange juice has gone a bit of a funny colour how many equivalent teaspoons of sugar in juice yeah so there's five in this Now, the thing is, as soon as you eat fruit, it's fine, but as soon as you juice it, it has a completely different impact on your blood sugars. This shouldn't be part of our children's diet, and it should be a treat for us. Um, And um, so, yes, there was five. If you're going to juice anything, juice your veggies. I don't see why you juice anything, but, um, yeah, if, if that's your thing. Brilliant, and a very small flapjack again it's oats, oats and sugar, I'm losing you, it's five, yeah, Uh, uh, uh. yeah, brill, okay, anyway, after lunch you head to a meeting, it's really hard, somebody's giving you some feedback, and uh, you're not feeling good about yourself, so you decide to hit the hard stuff, full fat coke, solve everything, how many equivalent teaspoons of sugar in some coke? This You're already on the high today. Usually I've got people getting up. It's 14. How many kids do you see going to school with this? They've already exceeded their sugar. Coke Zero, you know, also has artificial sweeteners in, so it isn't a solution. Again, this is a treat. Uh, if you want to have it fab, but don't make it a daily thing. Uh, I don't know, just a few in there. A... <laughs> Brill. We're nearly there. You get home. uh, Your partner's brought your kids home, but has asked you to give them tea. Oh, thank goodness for Lloyd Grossman and a bit of pasta. Now, it's really interesting. I don't consider this an ultra-processed food. I recognise all the ingredients. There's probably a little bit more sugar than I would put in it. But I would consider this a processed food. I'm not saying it's bad. But how much sugar in half a jar... Yeah, so there's three, um, but again, it's just bearing that in mind, how it kind of builds up. Uh, And then Harry's kicking off, because his friend had one of those sucky things, yogurts, and you're rummaging around in the kitchen, trying to calm him down. By the time you come back, he's watching Night Garden, and you drink it anyway. So (laughs) it is very small, so don't go ten. How many in a little thing like this? Yeah, so it's one, but how many kids under two do you see with this? They have no place, you know, in our children's diet. Um, And it is, I'd consider it ultra-processed as well. Uh, So just one there. Fab, kids are in bed, partner comes home, it's Friday night. Oh, yeah. There's none in that. None. Zero. That is gin, my friend. (laughs) So and nobody drinks one two five, if you do you're weird. So we've got two fifty ml glass. How many equivalent teaspoons of sugar? Zero. Six. Zero. Zero. Yeah. It's anywhere between three to six. It depends when, what type of grape it is, blah, blah, blah. Now, wine is another beautiful thing where it's fermented food, it has loads of polyphenols in, it is good for our gut microbiome, brilliant if you eat it, drink it with food, it has a place. So I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm just saying if you're thinking how much sugar's in your diet, not to forget that we'll find it in some of these other things. Brilliant. Anyway, you're about to go to bed, lights are out, your email pings. It's something to do with that feedback earlier. And you had no intention of opening it. As you were going, you did open it, you suddenly find yourself in front of the fridge. How does it happen? And what's even worse is you have one of those partners that opened it and has taken one. I mean, who are you? (laughs) And anyway, so you intend to take one, but you're ruminating about what you're going to say to this person on Monday, and you eat the whole packet. Didn't even taste it, so it probably doesn't count. But how many equivalent teaspoons of sugar in a packet of these? 14. So, yeah, we'll just shake a bit. I think I didn't put the other bits in for the wine. See? Brilliant. Oh, so when you're thinking that when you get to seven teaspoons of sugar in your daily diet, it is damaging your proteins and your DNA and causing a problem, you start to see that we have an issue. And I think one of the other things with sugar is the information it gives our body. So when you eat a lot of sugar, your body is fabulous. It knows it needs to regulate its sugar. It releases a hormone called insulin. Hormones are just chemical messengers that go around saying the same thing again and again. A bit like how I'm feeling. And... um, (laughs) And anyway, so it goes and it's like, oh, we've got loads of sugar. Let's shove it where we can. Let's store it as glycogen in the muscle. Let's put it in the liver. And then the sugars are still high. And they're like, oh, no. Tell the body to use nothing but sugar. Don't use fat. Don't use anything else. We've got to get through it. And it still remains high. And then it's like, oh, rubbish. Let's make fat. And that's what it tells the body to do. So... This is one of the reasons why we are the fattest nation in Europe. And that's not to shame obesity. This is a cultural problem that we have. We have been told to eat diet foods that are full of sugar and full of artificial sweeteners, which also uh, disrupt our hormones and contribute to obesity and diabetes. And so it's realizing that food is so much more. And what we find is that when we start deprocessing our food, we start eating a real diet, you don't put this in your cooking. And when you do, it's a treat. Like I, you know, as I said, we do 80 20. I've got three teenage girls now. And over the last 10 years, as I've got into this, one, at the beginning, I was way too radical and bless them, they didn't know what had happened to mum overnight. And, but, and I realised I had to step back and do this slowly. So we created rhythms around food. It is beautiful to have sugary sweets and enjoy yourself. And this might be a time for you coming together and celebrating and enjoying your food. It is totally fine. You know, and, it, and your body can cope with it. But then we need to think about creating some rhythms where we're more fasted in our approach. We can talk about fasting if you want. In terms of how we are handling it. But really, it is simple as eating real food, eating with gratitude, and eating together. So, just as a reminder, you know, lifestyle choices collectively, how we create culture in our workplaces, in our families, in our communities, our individual responses within that. It is, you can't do this individually. You're gonna to have to ask some questions of how you do it as communities. Um, and just keeping it about, remembering, get a good night's sleep, you know, eat some real food, do something that you love that breaks that cycle around, stress, you know, go for a walk, do some squats while the kettle's boiling, um, and connect. You know, connecting to yourself for me is the biggest thing I can do to help you as a clinician because your body knows what it wants it knows what it needs. And if I can give you permission to listen to it and act on it, you will find your way to health. So connecting to self, listening to your intuitive self is so important. Connecting to others and connecting to nature and that sense of faith that gives us purpose. And you should, well, we hope that we can then reverse the crisis that we find ourselves in within our nation.
0: You've been listening to the Evangelists Conference podcast. Visit evangelistsconference.com to find out more.